Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Dan's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This July 2017 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation focusing on Alzheimer's disease, what the future holds. Our guest presenters are Dr. Piero Antuano, Professor of Neurology and Biophysics and Director of the Dementia Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Julie Grassel, a clinical research nurse with the Clinical and Translational Science Institute's Adult Translational Research Unit at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here first is Julie Grassel. Wow, and thank you everyone for coming. What a huge group. I'll talk for a few minutes about research and Alzheimer's Association, and then Dr. Antoine will speak about the new trends that we're seeing in research for Alzheimer's. So first of all, I'm actually affected personally and professionally, and I find myself very blessed that my professional life and personal life merge. That doesn't happen for many people, that you have a passion, and you go to work every day, and it's like, oh, you know, you want to make a difference. So. Personally, um, my husband has early onset dementia. He's 51 and started having some memory problems when he was 43. And so we've been in this journey together and in the back, the Alzheimer's Association, Linda Market, wherever you are. So Linda actually came to my work when I worked, I was a teacher at WCTC and invited me to come to a support group at the Alzheimer's Association and without the Alzheimer's Association, I wouldn't be up here today talking because um, they've done so much for me. So when I work at the True, at, we call it the True, okay, at the Medical College, we have over 100 different clinical research trials, okay? So um, it's not just Alzheimer's, but we're finding, you know, since I've been there a year and a half, we've had more and more trials. And again, it's one of my passions. Everyone's like, okay, Julie, we know you want to work with, with those patients. So. I do have to say half of my best friends have Alzheimer's and the other half of my best friends are the spouses that care for them. Um, and that's how I kind of explain it. And that all came through the Alzheimer's Association connecting us and um, we have one big family through there. So if you are experiencing, you know, if you know someone that's been diagnosed, if you have a family, you know, friend that's been diagnosed, please, all you have to do is go to the back table and get the pamphlet with the 1-800 number, because all you have to do is connect them at the association and things will move forward for them. That being said, could I have a, people raise their hands if you know someone who's affected by any type of dementia? Okay, I want everyone to look around now. Look at all the hands. I guess, yeah, <laughs> us too. <laughs> okay, so. The other big thing I want you to leave today knowing is that the Alzheimer's Association isn't just for Alzheimer's, okay? And I think a lot of people don't realize that because it's in the name, but it's actually for Alzheimer's and any other dementia. I think the first thing you need to know is that dementia, so problems with memory, it's like a big umbrella, and Alzheimer's is just one type of dementia. You know, there's frontal temporal dementia, you can have vascular dementia, like from a stroke. So Alzheimer's is one section, but it's like the largest amount of people, right? And people can relate when you say it's Alzheimer's, they kind of have an idea of what it is. 
But how many of you think that Alzheimer's is a normal part of aging? I actually hear that a lot. They'll say to me, well, isn't that just normal? You know, as you get older, that's just something that can happen. But you are all correct. See, and I was a teacher for 15 years, so you all get like a gold star because <laughs> that's not true. No, it's a fatal brain disease. And you know what? If I could make commercials on TV, I'd be like standing up there and saying it's a fatal brain disease. I just, oh, you know, when Mike was diagnosed, I was just like, I wanted to go on the top of a mountain and just yell like, hello, people. How can you still live life like things are normal? There's a, a fatal brain disease out there and people are dying from it. It might not always be written on the death certificate yet. We're still making strides in that, but it's progressive. It was only discovered 110 years ago as a disease, and it's degenerative. It's not just for old people. I mean, I've met people that are as young as, like, in their 30s, okay, or family members that have had it in their 30s. There's no effective treatment, and there's no cure. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people talk about. Kind of like cancer, it's like the big C word, and, like, no one talked about it. And look what's happened now with cancer research and we have cancer centers and things like that. So that's my dream, is that we can get more people educated, more people talking out in the community. Don't be ashamed of it. You know, if you had a broken arm or a broken leg, you'd get it treated, right? So one of our friends, Marty Shriver, says it's not like a casserole disease where you hear that someone has Alzheimer's and you take them a chicken casserole or tuna casserole. As a nurse and also as a care partner, for my husband, you can do two things in life, right? You can either feel like externally things are just happening to you and you can't do anything about it and you're just gonna be depressed and just like live with it and isolate yourself. Or you can think, okay, what can I do that's positive? What can I do to make a difference in other people's lives? We have a brand new granddaughter and in her generation, I want there to be the first survivor you have to stand up and do something about it. And so once I got involved with the association, I became an advocate. The association trains us, and I've been to Madison. Then I went to Washington, D.C. with other advocates. We just march right up to the offices of the you know, House of Representatives and Senate and ask for more research. So that's where you guys can make a difference, too. You can call the association and say, how can I get involved? Because our nation has come up with a plan, and the NIH has said, if we have $2 billion in research, we'll be able to find some type of treatment by 2025. The exciting news is they've had historic increases in funding, earmarked specifically for Alzheimer's. But we're not at the $2 billion yet. And cancer has 5 or $6 billion. You know, We don't want to take money from them, but think of all of the treatments that they have. And um, one of my best friends just died of um, Alzheimer's in April, and I just think of Gail. I have a ring with her name on it, and I think I don't want my other friends to have to go through this. So that's what I'm doing is to advocate for more research dollars. Fortunately, I have worked with Dr. Antuano at our translational research unit, and I'm trying to get the money for him, and then we'll see what we can do. Next, CTSI Science Cafe welcomes insight and expertise from Dr. Piero Antuano. So I've been involved in uh, Alzheimer's disease research and patient care since I graduated, which happened last century. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a time, in fact, when Alzheimer's disease did not exist. And when I remember when we started getting involved in this disease was because there was some early evidence that 
there are some chemicals that modulate memory and we could boost these chemicals like we did with Parkinson's disease and maybe improve this uh, very rare disease that nobody ever saw that afflicts 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds. Then, and it took us four years to find one person with Alzheimer's disease because it didn't exist. This, I'm talking about 75, 1980. And then we realized that this very rare uh, memory disorder of people in their 50s, 40s, and 30s was actually identical to what we thought was normal aging. If you think about the caricature of the old person in Western movies, is this old guy who's dotty and he, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's kind of a cliche of the past of the typical normal, healthy, elderly person. You lose your hair, it turns white, you get your skin get wrinkled, and you lose your memory. We know that correctly. That is not necessarily the case. One thing has really fascinated me in all of these years I've been involved with Alzheimer's disease is meeting people, especially in the nun study that we were involved, who were 80, 90, 100, 105, with perfect memory. And I was wondering, what is their secret? It's as important to discover why some people age without aging as much as it is important to know why some people get Alzheimer's disease and other people do not. So I would like just to give you some themes, how the, the, the perception of this disease has changed. When I started studying neurology again in the 70s, um, neurology was made of diseases of the brain like cancer, infections, infections, and then this chapter called neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. And we didn't know anything about them. After all, the brain is way up here, separated from the rest of the body, protected by special membranes. You can give an antibiotic, it doesn't go into the brain. It's really hard to reach this very protected structure. Now we know that the brain is exposed not only to the rest of the body and to the influences negative or positive of your life, but also might be affected the risk of getting this dementia and the brain function by lifestyles. We've discovered, for instance, that the brain is only 2% of your body weight, but uses 20% of the oxygen of every breath you take, because metabolically is extremely active machinery that constantly is involved in regulating not only itself, but everything you do, everything you think, everything you move, everything, including things you don't even know you're doing, such as keeping your heart going, for instance, keeping your breathing going. So it's really involved with, uh, with the rest of the body and also the environment. Almost 10 years ago, I, my mother-in-law died with Alzheimer's disease, and with my wife, we were cleaning out the house, going in the basement, moving stuff out. And I found this magazine called Look, which is an equivalent of Life magazine. And it was 1962. And it said, there is a blood test that can predict who may get heart attacks. And it was incredible that you can actually measure something in the blood and could predict who of these 40, 45-year-olds who were suddenly having cardiac arrest could die. It was called cholesterol. So this was really revolutionary, that you could measure something in the blood related to the heart. They also discovered that the people who smoked, people who had high blood pressure, people who were overweight, seemed to be a higher risk of dying early of cardiovascular disease. So lifestyle could actually predict or protect uh, people from heart disease. One of the big themes or concepts that has been developed over the last five to 10 years is that lifestyles might influence the risk of getting dementia. So the brain is not hidden in this box up there, isolated from the rest of the body or the environment, but actually lifestyles might determine or increase or decrease the risk of getting dementia. So in other words, you generally go old the same way you have lived your life. 
if you abused yourself, if you drank too much, if you hit your head too much, well, you might be a 65-year-old that looks like a 75-year-old. But if you lived healthily, you might end up living your later decades in a much more sort of healthy state. And the same thing is for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Um, remember that you know, the body was not engineered to live more than 30 years of age. And we are not any different from our ancestors 100,000 years ago when we used to run around the savanna. But now we've developed these incredible improvements of uh, life, primarily clean water, vaccines, that now we get to live 30, 40, and guess what? Your eyes starts to go, you need glasses, you can't read. Why? Because the eyeballs are not made to live 40 years because everybody was dead. The average lifespan in Wisconsin, when did we become a state, 80, 48, 49? It was less than 40. Now, imagine, we have doubled that lifespan. And we've, as you grow older, prostate doesn't seem to hold what it's supposed to hold, and memory starts to go arthritis starts to set in because again joints you know once you you're 30 something will eat you so you're done you don't need to keep these joints going now we have artificial limbs artificial knees and so forth so this means that as you grow older you need to protect your brain this is the bottom message we're getting from identifying risk factors for dementia and what are these risk factors the same risk factors that they are for heart disease hypertension diabetes high cholesterol at the age of 50 55 might predict who might have dementia 25 years later. So we need to take care of these risk factors for development of dementia, especially if you have, like me, a family history of dementia. Actually, these risk factors directly affect the brain because we have a certain amount of brain reserve, like some gas in your gas tank. If you consume it too much because you have small strokes, head trauma, diabetes, when you get to be 65, 75, you're not going to have brain reserve to fight, guess what, Alzheimer's disease that starts to seep in. So we need to know and give to message the young people here, with the many, that the prevention of Alzheimer's disease starts really when you're young. Uh, when you're 30, 35, you should start thinking about checking your blood pressure if that's in your family. Uh, think about what you're eating, because diet, specifically Mediterranean diet, has a protective effect from uh, Alzheimer's disease. Also, socialization is a protective effect from getting Alzheimer's disease. People who are in their 50s are more socially engaged with activities which seem to have an altruistic content, like people who volunteer, people who are involved in cognitive activities. For instance, listening to music, going to a concert is fine, but if you learn a musical instrument, it's even better because you have more interactive learning experience. Going to a museum and watching paintings, great, but if you are docent and you have to study and prepare because there's a new exhibit, that kind of keeps your brain growing this brain reserve is better protected. But the interesting thing also is that these risk factors in the age 50, 55 that can cause or protect you from the disease are not the same ones when you are 70 or 75. When you're 70 or 75, actually to be a little bit overweight is good. When you're 70 or 75, to have a little bit of extra cholesterol is good because the brain is made out of cholesterol. So what might be a protective effect at a certain age may not be the protective effect at a different age. So even during life, these values start to change relatively to Alzheimer's disease. The other concept or discovery that has been finally accepted by the majority of researchers is that Alzheimer's disease does not start when you have a memory problem, but very likely starts maybe 20 years earlier. If we look at autopsies of the brain, we see that this amyloid protein, which is one of the first changes in the brain, starts to appear at age 55, 65 in normal people. 
but the diagnosis is made 65, 75 more commonly, suggesting that there is a 10-year hiatus where these chemical changes appear in the brain, but we have so much brain reserve that we don't see any change. In Sweden, where they have socialized medicine, they do autopsies on people who die in car accidents over age 65. And they discovered 50% of those people at age 65 already had amyloid. And this, these studies were done more than 10 years ago, suggesting they were already on the path to get Alzheimer's disease, maybe age 70, 75. So we know that this disease starts earlier. The investigators who in their 80s characterized this beta amyloid protein, they realized that it is ubiquitous, tends to form very slowly, and to form a plaque, it takes more than 10 years, maybe 15, 20 years, to get from an immature to a mature plaque. But people who have Alzheimer's disease live 10 years or so, so there must be a preclinical period where things are happening, but that we don't know that they're happening because the guy is normal. So because of that, now they have developed some tests to identify these people who are still normal, most of us in this room, who might be at risk of future development of Alzheimer's disease. And they've developed a spinal tap test looking specifically at the amounts of amyloid protein in the spinal fluid. Tau protein is another kind of markers of disease. And more recently, in a more friendly intervention, which consists in getting a PET scan that can measure the amyloid and the tau protein in the brain. And if you take 100 people age 65, you realize that 30% of them who are fine already have amyloid in the head, a lot of it. They are probably will progress to Alzheimer's disease. This might be interesting, but useless if I don't have anything to give the person who has these positive tests. It's like saying, well, I know you will have cancer, but I have nothing to offer you. Ethically, you wonder, what's the point? Maybe I'm not going to go to college because I already have the signs of the disease, you know. But that's how medicine develops. That is, you first know how to diagnose the diagnosis clinically, then you get a blood test, an x-ray that confirms it above and beyond the clinical impression, and then you wait till there's a treatment. The closest example to Alzheimer's disease 100 years ago was neurosyphilis, which is the most common form of dementia in the 1900s. Finally, somebody developed a test that could look at the bacterium that can cause the disease. So you didn't have to do the diagnosis clinically. If you had the spiroketa, this bacterium, then you know the person had neurosyphilis. It took 40 years to get penicillin, medication that could cure this disease. But in the meantime, we have this ethically uncomfortable state where we can measure the risk of getting the disease in people, but still we don't have anything to offer them. And this is where we are with Alzheimer's disease now. If you want to, you could have a test to see if you have amyloid, but so what? We don't have anything to offer you. There are investigational drug studies, some of them done at the medical college, with antibodies to remove this amyloid from the brain. If this is a valid course of action, we don't know. There's some skepticism after we've been doing this for more than five, six years. We remove the amyloid, but we may be leaving behind dead tissue so that we may slow down the progression, but not necessarily repair the brain, that is for sure. Because of the interest in the diagnosis of people at risk for the disease, there are studies that we're actually doing, getting a buccal swab from people, and then just storing it, so that when there are going to be medications that seem to be of value to certain genetic makeup in people who are at high risk of the disease, they may be called back to get involved in a pharmacological study, even if they are normal. So imagine that. Now we're starting to treat normal people as if they were patients, and we slip. Sometimes we say, oh, I have a patient. No, wait a minute, it's not a patient. It's a perfectly healthy guy, a volunteer. So ethically, we're making everybody a patient when they're not a patient. So imagine if a boss knows that I have a positive test. He'll say, hmm, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy because he's, you know, he's running around diagnosing and treating people. Maybe I should 
put them aside or something. So we create more problems rather than providing solutions at this point. But that's common to be in this kind of limbo state before we actually have an intervention. And the intervention is pharmacological, but the latest information was that probably we need to do what we did with heart disease. That is, let's work on these risk factors. Let's change our lifestyle, especially if you have two risk factors, which is familiarity and age, which are the worst things for Alzheimer's disease. If you have a family history and you're getting older, probably the lifestyle, checking all of the medical conditions that could be a risk factor for the disease is the way to go, so that you will get it, but you'll get it later. That means that if we could delay the onset of the disease by five years, half of the cases of Alzheimer's disease would disappear because these elderly people would have something else. But at least we will see the number of Alzheimer's disease starting to go down just with prevention. Today, fewer people die of heart attacks and stroke than they did in the 50s and the 60s because of this lifestyle changes. So there's kind of disappointment that we haven't developed a treatment yet, let alone a cure, but hope that probably this is a way to start making a difference in regards to people who have Alzheimer's disease because we know that Mediterranean diet and other risk factors, even in people who have the diagnosis, provide better quality of life. But the intervention has to be early. We know that when we started to treat people in the 80s and 90s with Alzheimer's disease, it was way too late. And a lot of failed studies were because probably the devastation was so far gone that the medication just didn't have a chance. Then we started investing in people who have a pre-Alzheimer's disease state called mild cognitive impairment. They're still working, driving, doing everything, but they're forgetful. But we know by doing memory tests that it's that kind, that quality, that might predict Alzheimer's disease. Even that's late, because those people already have 100% amyloid in the brain when we do these scans. We need to now go and do these tests in normal people. In other words, we need to treat the disease before we have the memory problem. If somebody has cancer and there are metastases in the bones, in the liver, well, I'll tell you, the options are pretty slim. But if you find a carcinoma in situ, as they call it, you find two cells in a positive biopsy, well, then you can remove the tissue, you can do radiation, you can do chemotherapy. You have many options. In Alzheimer's disease, it's the same thing. By the time the memory is gone, it's probably late for pharmacological intervention. So there is this shift in treating earlier and earlier people, including normal people. There's three national studies treating normal people with positive amyloid scans in a family history to see if they eventually get to be late 60s and 70s without developing the disease. Amen. I'm going to stop here. <laughs> we think the interesting part of these gatherings is addressing your concerns and questions. Yes? Can you tell me what people with Alzheimer's die? I mean, you hear people say, you know, my mother died from Alzheimer's. Yes. To keep it very simple, as the disease progresses, the brain forgets, how am I going to put a foot in front of the other so I can walk? So people sit, lie down, they don't breathe deeply, they tend to accumulate secretions, they get pneumonia, and it's treated. Then they get pneumonia again, and it's treated. Then you reach a point, you say, you know, I'm not going to go to the hospital and put this poor person in the ICU with IVs. We'll treat them by mouth if he has another infection. Frequently, they may have bladder infections, which eventually extend to infect the blood. There's blood poisoning, and then they could pass away that way. Sometimes people tend to sleep more and more during the day to the point that you realize, I think he's in coma because if I don't wake him up, he would sleep 24 hours a day. And they do that. They kind of actually may be just sleeping in coma. So those are the two kind of ways. Of course, there's medical complications like breaking a hip and so things which can accelerate this course. Yes? Uh, 
The question was, is turmeric or curry helpful in dimension? It's a good antioxidant, and it has been proposed for Alzheimer's disease, like many other food additives, which are strongly antioxidants, like blueberries and so forth. I know of one study done in India looking at its effects on memory, but the study was criticized because how the study was done, not enough people and so forth. So the verdict is out. We don't know if it does or if it doesn't help. The problem with all of these food supplements is that they're not proprietary, so nobody's really interested in doing a serious scientific study. Yes? Yeah. So there's two types of genes. One that determines if you have a gene that will 100% give you the disease, and it's a form of Alzheimer's disease that more commonly happens in the young population, and it's a determinant gene because it will determine you're going to have it if you carry the gene 100%. And generally, one of the two parents had this gene, and one of the two parents probably had dementia again at a similar age. There are many studies done in families with Alzheimer's disease to look at which gene are impaired. And there's two of them which more commonly seem to show up. But there are many more, probably 10, 15, 20 genes that cause Alzheimer's disease. And there's another 10, 15 genes that protect you from Alzheimer's disease. So it's not just one gene that gives you the disease. It seems to be a cocktail of genes that could put you on this side or that side of the chart. But for the early onset Alzheimer's disease, yes, there are some tests that we do use in early onset of the disease. More commonly, in the 98% of Alzheimer's disease, which happens after age 65, there is a risk gene, not a determinant gene tells you you have a higher risk. We notice that 50% of Alzheimer's patients carry this gene compared to 20-25% of the general population. Not good enough to make a diagnosis, but just to say yes, you have a higher risk if you carry this gene, which is called APOE4. There's a study here called Gene Match, which looks at your genes, puts them in this data bank, and then when there is a specific anti-bad gene medication, they will probably contact you five years from now or wherever. It's a new way of doing research, which is the future of medicine, targeted to your genome. Do you have the genes that can allow this medication to work. Yes? Do you think there's evidence for a connection between air pollution and Alzheimer's My silence is eloquent. <laughs> I don't know. You know, anything that affects negatively your health, I think eventually will affect this brain reserve. If you start taking cortisone because of your breathing, because of emphysema, because of... I'm sure indirectly will affect the risk of getting dementia. But there's no direct correlation or causation so far noted. Yes? I'm wondering if there's a correlation between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's, and also if you have a family history of vascular disease, how does that impact your risk for Alzheimer's? The question was, what's the connection between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease? And if you have a family history of vascular dementia, does that put you at risk for Alzheimer's disease? So there is a connection between the two. They're separate diseases, but vascular dementia generally happens in people who have had strokes, who have had other cerebrovascular problems. That reduces your brain reserve. So that causes a different type of dementia, but definitely affects the brain. And as that vascular dementia progresses, we notice that it hastens the accumulation of amyloid plaques, so that most people who have vascular dementia, when the autopsy is done, there's always evidence of Alzheimer's disease as well. And clinically, people who have also vascular dementia, they have a mini stroke, then they're okay, they improve, 
Six months pass by, then boom, another drop, maybe another mini stroke, confusion maybe, then they get better, they improve, and then they have another stepwise progression. This is vascular dementia. But after two or three years, they don't have any vascular problems, they don't have strokes, but they decline because probably now the presence of amyloid is sufficient to cause disease number two. So in a certain way, even though it's a very generic statement, yes, vascular dementia might be a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Yes? So we know gender has an effect on Alzheimer's. Is race affected in any way? Yes. There's a difference in race because there's a difference in APOE, which is a risk factor for the disease. And there's many studies, conflicting studies, but there is maybe an influence of this APOE. Education is an issue in minorities, especially the Hispanic minorities who have the highest incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Hispanics, again, also blacks, but mostly Hispanics, have also a much higher incidence, twice as many incidence of diabetes, for instance. And so they have a vascular disease load, which is another important risk factor for getting dementia. So I think it's related to this environmental lifestyle changes. Very good, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe, brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and recorded live at St. Anne Center for Intergenerational Care, Osiris Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, sign up as a community member. We need your help to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of people worldwide. And be sure to also check out our CTSI Discovery Radio podcast series as well. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir. 